Colossians 4, beginning at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. All right, so what I want to do in, in this uh, uh, speech lecture, which, which phrase am I supposed to use? <clears throat> brief monologue, uh, brief word of exhortation, um, is talk about building a culture of evangelism. And I'll start off uh, by, by telling uh, this little story. So uh, I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm not Dutch at all, but I really like some of the Dutch guys quite a bit. I, I told the story, I'll give you the super fast version. So I grew up non-Christian, uh, became a Christian in my early 20s while following a band called the Grateful Dead around the country. Uh, somebody gave me a Bible in the middle of this kind of crazy uh, trip and uh, God was very gracious. I, on the back of a Greyhound bus, I started reading the Bible, became a Christian, uh, went back to North Carolina where I grew up, um, went to a Baptist church, got saved five or six times. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really great joke. Baptized <clears throat> more than once, all kinds of struggles with assurance of salvation. Eventually got into a little church that had kind of reformed influences, sent me to Bible college. Uh, that's where I met my wife and uh, memorized just a ton of Bible. Theology wasn't so great. Memorizing the Bible was fantastic. Got to seminary and uh, felt like the Bible to me was a large bowl of pearls yet unstrung. And it was really when I began reading uh, some of your uh, Outerlingen, some of your grandparents like Gerhardus Voss and Herman Ritterboss and Herman Bovink, uh, that all of a sudden uh, this giant bowl of pearls had string and the string was the covenant and the gospel. And so I named my son after Gerhardus Voss, which is kind of fun because uh, he's darker skinned than I am. I'm mixed race. Uh, my son is more African-American than I am, and he's got this good, strong Dutch middle name. You can, you can sort that out however you like. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Voss, Garth Voss, is one of my favorite authors. I did my THM on him, blah, blah, blah. And uh, down in the archive basement at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, there are some old handwritten sermons, including one by J. Gresham Machen, our Klaus Gilder, um, and on a handwritten sermon that he preached in the Princeton Chapel, uh, to which Voss was an attendee. Voss listened to Machen's sermon, and Machen argued in this sermon that the most important thing the church does is? Yes. But don't get excited, because if you got it right, you're about to be wrong. <clears throat> so Machen argued in this sermon that the most important thing the church does is evangelism. And it's in black ink. And then over on the side in the margin, it says, and I love this, Dr. Voss disagreed with me. And I found this one day, you know, this young, you know, impetuous student. And <laughs> it's on, right? Rumble in the jungle. I mean, this is going to be like Voss disagreeing with Machen. This is the stuff of legend. So if Voss is wrong, and evangelism's not the most important thing the church does, what would be the most important thing the church does? Worship. That's right. So if you said evangelism earlier, you were wrong. Worship really is the most important thing that the church does. You know why? Uh, worship is eschatological. In heaven, 
we will no longer be doing evangelism. We will be worshiping with the evangelized. In heaven, we will glorify and enjoy God for all eternity with that beautiful family that's all his by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And there will neither be sin uh, nor sadness, sickness nor death. Uh, Worship, even in this present evil age, is a foretaste of the age to come. And in this present evil age, worship is the most important thing that the church does. But evangelism is number two. And number two is not bad. Number two is actually pretty good. So if worship is the most important thing that the church does, that's going to be my view. I'm sticking to it. Uh, But evangelism, I think we rightly say, is the second most important thing that the church does. If you look at the Bible, it's the commission that, that Jesus gave to his church until he comes and the evangelized are all home. Uh, One popular uh, author says that um, evangelism happens because worship doesn't, right? Uh, Jesus says he's come to seek and save true worshipers, okay? Uh, So evangelism is what it is that we are called to do, and it's part of the work of the church. Uh, Our church story is a little bit unusual. Uh, Our church, so I should say, I've been an OPC pastor for 18 years. That amazes me. Because uh, I don't feel like I'm nearly old enough to be able to say that, but my daughter disagrees. So <clears throat> I've planted, by God's grace, or had a hand in planting as the church planner, uh, two churches. The first was a mother-daughter church. That would be pretty familiar to the way that you usually do church planning, uh, which is basically to say uh, we had a mother church here about 35 minutes away. We had a handful of families that were making the drive over there. And eventually we decided, let's make that a daughter church. And I was called as the church planner and went. And that's how uh, Reformation got started. The second one uh, is a little bit more unusual. It's what we would call a parachute plant, and which is basically they send someone to an area uh, with virtually no core group to begin with. And uh, basically just through evangelism, making new relationships, uh, things like that, uh, the hope is that a church would form crazy as that sounds, it sounded fantastic to me. I'm a little bit nuts. You figured that out already by now. I am in Edmonton by choice in <laughs> was March 1st, which is just proof that you can be educated but not intelligent. <laughs> I have five college degrees and not a lick of sense, <laughs> but so it is. So, uh, so we had two young babies. Kira was uh, 14 months. Carl our son was given to me, literally uh, given to my wife and me the day before I preached my goodbye sermon in Orlando. Uh, so he came completely out of the blue. That's how adoption happens. You get nine months microwaved into about a couple days. And so all of a sudden we have this bouncing baby boy, 14-month-old girl. I say goodbye to a church. We moved to an area. We had some contacts. By the time we got there, uh, after a month of changing diapers and trying to figure out Uh, what part of the Wizard of Oz we were spinning in. Uh, We began a Bible study with a couple of families that grew to 35, 40 people in a month, uh, 50 to to 60 people in a few months. And now we're 12 years later, by God's grace, it's a a church with its own property, seven elders, deacons, and uh, we're about to start planting churches. It's been an amazing ride. I mean, it's just really been wonderful. And it proves the point that not only is God still in the business of seeking and saving, but he's the church planner. Uh, one of the unique things about our church, uh, and this is maybe almost like a, fo- your world is really like going to a distant planet for me. And I, I mean that quite sincerely. I just, you know, covenant life, transgenerational 
churches. We've got, you know, Oma and Opa and multiple generations that occupy the same pew. I mean, this is like the stuff, I, it's amazing, beautiful to me. Our church, really the opposite. Uh, this is, in our church's case, uh, many people's first church, like period. Like we have adult baptisms. I'm introducing guys to things like family worship. It's multicultural. Uh, one of my uh, elders is just a fantastic African-American gentleman, beautiful, beautiful, godly, uh, sweet man, came out of a charismatic church, uh, discovered our church in some strange uh, connection, came down one day, sat down, listened, never left, been there uh, for about a decade. And so, you know, Covenant is just an unusual church, but what I'd like to do is just uh, hold it before you if for no other reason uh, to persuade you that God is still doing crazy things. He's saving people into churches. He's uh, drawing people that you'd never imagine being reformed elders into the office. He's raising up people uh, to go to seminary. One of the sweetest stories in our church is of a young uh, couple <clears throat> who recently graduated seminary together. Uh, the husband's planning to be a pastor. Uh, the wife uh, wants to be just an engaged mom. She's got a college degree, a seminary degree. Uh, she's not trying to be a pastor or anything, but she wants to just write and engage people. Uh, she's brilliant and just, just a very impressive young lady. And we met them through our church's college outreach to a nearby college campus. And when we first met them, uh, they were just, you know, kind of pot smoking dingbats. Is this being recorded? <laughs> if you know who you are, you know that I love you. <laughs> and it was just really a, a crazy story. We just were on campus. My wife bakes cookies. The kids come with me. We bring a guitar. Uh, we do a Bible study. Some kids come. Some kids leave. Uh, the young man uh, was in some crazy stuff at one point. Even came to church that he wanted to join. We sat down over a slice of pizza. And I said, no, you can't, not, not, no. But let's talk about what it means to really walk with Christ. This isn't just a club here where you get some cookies and everybody joins. And he disappeared and he came back like a year later. Sat in the upper bleachers of this little uh, mini uh, amphitheater, whatever the thing is we were meeting in, and uh, one week at a time, he slowly inched his way forward, like literally, like one pew at a time, and they get about halfway, I'm like, do you want to talk? He's like, yeah, I need to talk. So we went out, and you're going to love this part too. We decided to uh, read through something together, and he read of all things a book by a Dutch guy, Cornelius Van Til, Defense of the Faith. And in that context, uh, made a profession of his faith, one of the sweetest days for me, this young man making a tearful profession of faith before our elders. His now wife, by the way, uh, who was a college student there, uh, they hated each other. <clears throat> she started attending the church entirely independently of him, and the Lord's Supper made them have to say to one another, I don't like you. And as they began to talk, they began to realize, I like you. <laughs> and a number of months later, a good number of months, maybe a year, I had the privilege of doing their wedding. Um, the church has some amazing stories. It has young, it has old, it has mixed races, it has people who <clears throat> really love the Reformed faith, it has people who are kind of indifferent to the Reformed faith, it has readers, it has non-readers, uh, it has some crazy people. For a while, uh, this, this couple now, uh, the husband went to be with the Lord, and uh, the, the wife now is kind of in a, a retirement home, uh, but they came from pretty pretty crazy background. They believed in the aliens. Now, I'm not sure if you do or not. This far north, who knows? 
they could be close. Uh, but this couple did, and uh, they were a very interesting couple. When they made their profession of faith, we had elders, fantastic conversation. They believe in aliens, but they've got the gospel straight. What do we do? Can they join? Don't shake your heads or anything. I don't want to know what you think. We let them join. And uh, they love uh, to go around and tell people about Jesus. They go to Walmart, and they sit down because they can't walk very far. And they wait for other people to sit down on the same bench. They're strategic about it. They trap them. Because they wait, that tired old couple sitting there, like, you know, trying to breathe. They know they can't get away. And they ask them questions like, if that thing didn't work, do you know where you'd go? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty brilliant. When they, uh, when they joined the church, we said, now listen, it, it's, it's okay if you want to, you know, believe in aliens. You're persuaded. The government's hiding something in Area 51. You've seen that movie. But you can't talk to people in church about it. Well, my mom, her husband dies. He lived in Phoenix. Mom came to live with us. We brought her home. My mom starts coming to church, sits down with his family one day at a potluck, and they're like, you know, we love the church. We like the pastor, but he's in denial. Because <laughs> <clears throat> we know they're hiding aliens at Area 51, but whatever you do, don't tell the pastor we told you. <laughs> to which she says, that's going to be a little awkward because he's my son and I live with him now. <laughs> Where we live, you don't have to persuade people to do the work of evangelism, uh, which is a double-edged sword. Uh, don't get too excited. Uh, it's, it's exciting in this sense. It's encouraging in this sense that uh, you know, in, this, in the South, evangelism is like the 11th commandment. Everybody thinks there should be doing evangelism. The problem is uh, you can be really poor in a lot of other things. You can neglect your family. You can engage gluttony, gossip, all kinds of stuff. But if you're doing evangelism, then it's kind of okay. It's a bit of a caricature. But it really is such a big part of American piety to believe in evangelism that a lot of that happens while a lot of other things are important. And so you don't want to live in the extremes. A uh, big part of my work is to try to get dads to lead their families spiritually. It's one of the challenges that we have in our congregation. I'm going to guess that maybe one of the challenges up here is to get people to engage all the more in evangelism, uh, but maybe they're doing a great job with their families in general. Uh, but then again, look how many of you are here on a Friday night to listen to some crazy guy from Florida talk about evangelism. I mean, maybe the work's already done and we can go straight to coffee. Um, le but let me just suggest a few things that might be helpful uh, <clears throat> in terms of the idea of evangelism. Earlier, as we were finishing off that lecture that to me felt like 15 minutes until Laurel forcefully interrupted my little bubble and said, no, it's been almost an hour, is that, uh, you know, the gentleman earlier, John, who was talking about uh, some of the challenges before us, there are real challenges before the church. More and more, the pressure <clears throat> from the world is being felt by the church. You feel that, right? I hear it in conversations about your schools. The pressure is coming uh, <clears throat> to, to believe the Bible, to believe in the authority of Scripture, to believe in biblical definitions of gender. Uh, all the different things uh, that we stand for, there's pressure now on the church in ways that there have not been in the past. How do you respond to pressure? Well, you know, typically it's fight or flight, 
right? I mean, there's typically the options. You're either going to engage it or you're going to run from it. Uh, part of the problem is we're running out of places to run, right? Uh, and, and so to go back to Machen's suggestion, uh, his view, and I think this is right, and I think we need to wrestle with this together. The real danger, however, before the church is not the persecution that the world might bring at us. That might actually even be a not-so-bad thing. You know why? Because if you look at the church in history, and this is sad, but it's true, the church very often is at its best when it suffers the most. But isn't that kind of the way that it works, right? People, you know, they bond together uh, in the context of resisting a common enemy, right? Family goes to a hard thing, you know, sickness strikes one of the family members, you stop the bickering about the little stuff, and you focus on what really matters, you know, the church goes through persecution, it quits arguing over the color of the carpet, right, and it gets into, you know, the things that really matter, okay? Uh, I don't think persecution is really a threat in that sense to the church, but I think Machen was right when he said things like atrophy, indifference, and isolationism are real threats. So I want to kind of pick up where I left off and say, uh, I think there are some mentality changes that we need to engage. One uh, is atrophy, and hopefully the last lecture speech persuaded you that what it, at the heart of what it means to be reformed and Calvinistic is to be committed to evangelism, period. Full stop. Any other definition of Calvinism is a reconstruction of a Calvinism that Calvin himself did not know. So we're there, okay? Uh, but then uh, when you talk about indifferentism, that's a mentality that says, you know what, I just don't really care. I'm not accusing anybody here of that, uh, but I'll tell you, there are times when that runs well through my heart, right? <clears throat> so hopefully we might be willing to say there are times when we are uh, indifferent uh, towards the lost, right? There are times when they are an inconvenience. There are times where there are frustration. Uh, there are times when our hearts long to see people saved, and other times we get kind of cool. I think that's the reality of our piety. Uh, isolation is what I want to talk about uh, just a little bit. I'm going to come at this a couple different ways, okay? I I'm going to nudge, if I may say it like this, uh, even with some of my older friends here, and I'm going to nudge just as much with some of my younger friends here. Uh, isolationism, uh, I believe, can be something that actually does threaten our churches in a meaningful way, not just yours, but ours as well, because as a dad, one of the things I want to do is keep my kids safe. Nothing wrong with that. You want that. That's godly. That's pious, right? Uh, and insofar as we want to keep our kids safe, uh, part of where that potentially goes is to create walls that keep the world out and safety in. Here's the problem with that. Now, I'm going to get pushed back, but it's okay. Like I said, I love you, and I'm leaving. <laughs> it's not biblical. Isolationism is unbiblical, okay? There are sins that we commit, right? Sins of commission, and there are sins of omission, and isolationism is a sin of omission. Why? Uh, because the Great Commission says go out to the world. This is part of the church's identity in this present evil age, and uh, as I'm going to come back to Colossians 4, I, I'm fairly I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Paul says we need to walk in wisdom, and what's the preposition? Toward 
outsiders. Is that preposition? There's, an, there's a grammar teacher here somewhere drafting an email to me in their mind. Okay, so the Bible says we are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And this is where I think uh, that we need to be willing to stretch ourselves. And here's part of the reason why uh, outsiders have come inside the walls. Outsiders have come uh, inside of our attempted constructs of isolation to the point that I'm even going to go so far as to say uh, isolation is a myth. The rural church is a myth. I've enjoyed the 16 hours I think I've been here uh, so far driving down these lovely uh, little country roads, although my driver is trying to do so at potentially my own peril. Finally met someone that drives more, how do I want to say this? You know what I mean. (laughs) And I love it. I was a pizza delivery guy, so I actually feel quite at home. Beautiful little rural, you know, quiet, cozy lanes, trees hanging over, fields here, deer over there. Ah, the quiet life is a myth. And do you know why it's a myth? It's a myth because of a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, what once was quiet and secluded and largely monocultural all over the world now, including here, has become very cross-cultural. The nations have come to you. You used to have to go to the Middle East to meet someone from the Middle East. You have to go to Asia to meet someone from Asia. You used to have to go, you used to have to go, now you just have to go to Starbucks and sit down and look around and you realize that the rural community is a different community. Not only that, and this is not a bad thing, by the way. This is, this is a great thing. This is a wonderful time to be alive. This is a wonderful time to be reformed. This is a wonderful time to be the church. This is a wonderful time to be us. And this is a wonderful time to get with it. Because not only do you have the nations all around you at your back door, down your street, on your playground, where you buy groceries and coffee and gas, uh, we also have uh, these little boogers. And you know what this is? The whole world on a 12 by 12 screen. The whole world on a 12 by 12 screen where the ideas, the language, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, everything now is accessible so easily. We have filters and protective lenses and things on our social, you know, our devices at our house and we have an 11 year old who can navigate around all of them in a ways that makes me look like a fool. And I'm not even trying to alert you now to like the, the moral dangers of, you know, the internet. This is not that lecture. This is my way of saying the nations are not only on our street, in our neighborhood, all around us. They're literally in our home. Uh, and we have to just acknowledge it. The rural, isolated community, village, church thing is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It's a wonderful memory, but it has changed. Beloved, the world has changed. And so here are your options. You can either try to go find some other little remote Gilligan's Island and try to duplicate this thing again. You can pretend to try to build the walls even higher right here, but you know that's not going to work because walls can only go so high. And by the way, people can always walk out. Okay. Or uh, we can equip a rising generation and this generation and all of those who are still alive and taking breath 
to engage the nations on our street, in our homes, with the gospel. And that is biblical. Engaging the nations, the people on our streets, people where we shop, people where we play, that is biblical. Now, here's what I want to say, uh, hopefully, and a balancing word, okay? <clears throat> so, my sense is, I have the privilege, I'm an outsider, uh, my one Dutch phrase tonight, ik ben een hekke Boutenlander. <laughs> I am a crazy foreigner. Thank you for the five people that at least countenance my attempt at uh, pronunciation, which was always my weak spot. All right, so this is my observation. I sense, and you can tell me later if I'm wrong, that when I get these little invitations, opportunities to come up to Canada and talk about evangelism, there's actually a lot of excitement for the subject. But it's coming at a couple different directions. Uh, you have some who are saying, and this is largely an older generation, yes, we want that, but it was not something we necessarily saw as much of in our lifetime, but we'd like to see more. Hopefully that's a fair and generous way to say it. I think there are some nuances there. Uh, and I also have conversations uh, with uh, younger people who say, uh, we really want it and we are almost impatient to have it. And I even hear of people that leave. That happens, right? So let's just have you know, kind of the hard, honest conversation about it. And I want to nudge it two directions. Say, number one, uh, for those who are older, uh, we can still protect the church, our kids and our grandkids, but the way that we need to think about protecting now is training to engage because it's on. And it's on in ways that maybe weren't experienced in the last few decades or a previous generation, but it's on in such a way now that I'm persuaded as a dad and I'm a protective dad. You're talking about a man that came to Christ at age 21, been to jail and the whole nine yards, all the dumb stuff. Uh, if there's a more protective man in this room when it comes to his daughter, I'd like to meet him and we can go out in the woods and like bang our chest because I think I'm a pretty protective dad. And I am persuaded that the only way to truly protect my kids and your kids is not to try to pull them back and close the shades and hope the world doesn't notice us and bug us but to engage it, to train them, to train them how to engage the lost with the gospel, not just to believe the gospel for themselves, to give them the privilege <clears throat> of every once in a while seeing an adult baptism. So they'll believe, yes, God does this. This happens. There are forms for it in your book. Like This is actually, this is happening. This is a reality. This is what the church can and ought to be. These are beautiful things. Okay, uh, but I think it needs to be said uh, to those who are younger, and I really want the attention, the ear of those who are half my age, those who are frustrated because the church isn't evangelistic enough, who maybe are my age. I'm 47, so you do the math, right? So uh, when your grandparents came over here, whoever came over here first generation, uh, this means a lot to me, actually, because I have a concern. When they came over here, they didn't come over here as missionaries. They came to survive. They fled war, they fed hunger, they fed poverty. Have you ever gone to Holland with somebody who was actually a little kid during World War II and just seen the emotion? <clears throat> you understand what it was like to come here, the sacrifices that were made to go out in that cold and work the field so that another generation could rise up and not know poverty and war. And then the third generation could rise up and say, well, we don't have everything we want yet. We're out of here. I'm not okay with that. It would really encourage some 
uh, patience, some respect and love, enough to say that some wonderful things were hard fought for to build these churches and these schools, and that those sacrifices should be honored. But there's a difference between respecting the past and living in the past. And so there was a day when that was the thing that was called for, and that was the right thing that was called for. But now we have the benefit of all that work, the long-term investment has paid off and the nations are down the street. And there is a generation, the thing about uh, millennials in the Gen Y, and I think this is pretty important, is that they are itching to know where they fit. The problem with being a millennial and Gen Y <clears throat> is in a certain sense you have nothing to fight for, whereas the greatest generation had everything to fight for. To a lot of people who are now looking for their place in this world, where do I fit? What do I stand for? What am I willing to die for? Here's the problem. If there's nothing that you're willing to die for, if nothing in this world means so much to you that you're willing to die for it, it's hard to say what you're actually willing to live for. Uh, many have pointed out this odd phenomena of young people that are being attracted uh, to uh, two extremes. One, suicide. The other, uh, things like jihad. And, and these are kids with no, you know, Muslim background. These are kids uh, that all of a sudden are attracted to stuff. How'd they find out about it? Through social media. And you know what they found? They finally found something. That there are people that believe in something so much they're willing to die for it. And if you're willing to die for something, the implication is you're willing to live for something. I think this is the crisis of people about half my age and even younger. It is a crisis because in, in, in a place where people have absolutely everything given to them, this is the opposite of the greatest generation that had to work for everything, right? <clears throat> that there's nothing to die for. And this is where I believe we as parents need to cultivate a culture of evangelism by saying the thing that we need to be willing to both live and die for is the gospel. They're about to so love not only our church, but what God is going to do in and through our church that to believe uh, there's a reason why this is the place where I ought to spend and be spent. This is the place where I ought to give my energy, that God is in the business of doing beautiful things. He's seeking, he's saving, he's using the church, and he's going to use me. And here's, here's, the, here's the dilemma, is that if we don't train up our kids for where they fit in this great commission thing, the danger is we might lose them, but not simply to the world. One of the things that's really concerning me, like this is, okay, I'm, I, you have my ear, is to hear parents tell me that we've lost our kids to the, to the church, but we haven't lost them to the world. We've just lost them to different churches because those churches are doing evangelism and our church won't. Or let me just put a little nice, little tip on it here. We're almost at the end, right? So I got to say something kind of sparky to keep you really with me. Uh, those churches are doing evangelism, but our church won't. Or those churches will have a conference speaker to come in and talk about evangelism. And then nothing happens. And that would make me very sad. Because I flew a long way so that something would happen. I mean that. <clears throat> There's a generation rising up asking the question, where do I fit? Where do I fit in this great story? There's a wonderful little line uh, <clears throat> in The Lord of the Rings where uh, Samwise says uh, to Frodo, 
I wonder what kind of story we found ourselves in, Mr. Frodo. What kind of story are you in? What is your part in this story? The story, by the way, is the Great Commission. That's the story of the church until the end of the age. The question is, and it's a question you cannot avoid, a bad answer is still an answer, right? What is your part? What is your church's part? What is the part that your covenant kids, parents, Oma and Opa, where do we all fit into this story? What is our part? Because if we don't know our part, then we're just kind of rudderless. We're sort of drifting. And that's a very dangerous place to be. I, I'm convinced people want to know their part. And not only am I convinced they want to know their part, uh, there are so many things that you do so wonderfully well here. In a certain sense, this, is be, this will be easier for you than it would be in our context. And here's what I mean by that. You have, I mentioned this earlier today, this is my, I, I love this part of the speech speech. Uh, you have one of the greatest evangelistic tools at your disposal all the time. You know what it is? Ready? This is going to be deep theological. Quit stealing my thunder. Dutch apple pie. <laughs> the world will bend the knee to Dutch apple pie. Why do I believe that? Because you know when you get Dutch apple pie, you get it at the end of a meal. Do you know where you get Dutch apple pie, the good stuff? I'm not talking about the store-bought thing. You get it at home with your family. And one of the easiest things to suggest, you don't need some brilliant you know, conference speaker, not that you've had one, and you don't uh, need a, a program. Programs are fine. I like the one we've used, the one that's been uh, referred to earlier tonight, you're, you're welcome, wherever that brother is. Um, it's a great program, and I encourage it. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you want to see people come to Christ, it's not much more complicated than this. You with me? Just love them and feed them. Now, I'm not saying, you know, we can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. Only he can open a person's heart. But if you want to see people, non-Christians, come to Christ, come to your church, Stand right here and get baptized. And start raising their kids on these pews. Love them and feed them. Some of the best cooks in the world may be in this room. Some of the most loving people in the world may be in this room. As a kid that grew up without a dad, broken home, latchkey kids, all my friends just like that, you sit down at a table with a whole family and this is like, I used the phrase earlier, it's like unicorns. You've heard of them, but you ever seen one? Right? Uh, then you have this meal together, food, right? Who doesn't like food? Everyone loves food. Try this out. Would you like to come to my church on Sunday? Rewind the tape, go back 10 seconds, try this one instead. You wanna come to my house and eat? That wasn't so hard, was it? You have a pattern here where you have the family over every Sunday and almost only the family. That could probably be thought about a little bit. I know I'm stepping on holy toes there, but I'm willing to nudge, right? I heard a single minister tell me once that he almost never got invited over uh, on Sunday afternoons in the church that he's at because he's not part of the family. That blows me away. 
That might suggest it could be hard for the non-Christian down the street to get an invite to. What about a Friday night game night where you have over some people that don't go to church, make it a point, once a month, we're going to have somebody over, we're going to do a game night. Guess what we're going to cook? Dutch apple pie, right? And so we just, we play games. It could be a meal. You guys do something wonderfully rhythmically. This is why I love you. I want my kids to do this. I want 20 of your families to move down to St. Augustine, sorry, Julius, and be a part of our church and model this for us really well uh, because at the end of nearly every meal, after the Dutch apple pie, what happens? You read the Bible and you pray. If you're a young knucklehead without a dad, never seen what a man looks like, godly man. And then you watch a family well-ordered finish up not just with pie, but with Bible reading and prayer. Your heart is on the table right beside that plate. So don't make this too complicated. You can read books on evangelism. All that's fine. Don't make this too complicated. The brother was right. Relationships are key in this postmodern uh, world where everyone has sort of relationships on eye devices, but barely relationships with actual real living people that have pulses. Uh, an invite to a table to see a family well-ordered, uh, to spend that kind of time with people. Uh, that's the stage upon which we can then say, hey, and by the way, if you ever want to come and visit our church, you think this is great? You should see like 400 of us get together. And it's wonderful. I was here today. There are kids everywhere. There's little, you know, all these moms and stuff hanging out. It's a dangerous place to be, by the way. There's like all these moms. The homeschool group was here. And like one guy, dad, I, I got a picture from my wife just to show her how brave I am and I survived. Uh, you do so many things here so wonderfully well. Imagine if you could just draw the circle of your life just a little bit bigger so as to include other people that are still outside and don't have any of this. And you can invite them in even onto your terms. Your living room table could be the most, kitchen table could be the most potent weapon evangelistically uh, if we're just willing to love people and invite them in. Uh, so many people who come to Christ, if you hear their stories, that's where something began, right? Uh, somebody took the time and just showed them a little bit of love. And they responded to that, and they eventually meandered their way in. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers has made the point, you're not going to like this, but it's true. Gone are the day where people are looking for true churches. It's interesting because he's actually a Baptist. And I know you guys have this strong, you know, true church mentality in your background. I've read that stuff. I understand it. We have a version of it ourselves. But here's the problem. Uh, the percentage of people on the planet that are just looking for the true church is a diminishing number profoundly, even amongst Christians uh, whose categories about church have become so largely consumeristic that truth is not necessarily where they're starting. It might be programs or music or service length, which is not my strong suit, obviously. Our church has, I mean, they just, they gave up a long time ago. When I say my final point, they don't even get optimistic. <laughs> <clears throat> so if people on the outside aren't looking so much for us, right? Well, where does the burden fall to us to do what Colossians 4 said, which is to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time with gracious words, 
that we might know how we ought to answer each one. And beloved, this is the work of the church. This is the work of the true church. This is the work of the reformed church. This is the work of your church. And I believe, by God's grace, that this is what you want to do, not simply because you've had me up here, but because so many of you still look happy. God is doing great things. Do you believe that? As a preacher, uh, he used to walk up each step of his pulpit and he'd say at each step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit that he is still raising the dead, that the miracle of the resurrection uh, was punctuated in Jesus Christ, but it's perpetuated in the life of the church as God continues to raise the dead, those who are spiritually dead and blind. He gives sight, he gives life, and he gives them to the church. And he uses means. And sometimes they make it real easy for you and they just walk right in. But quite often he uses us as we walk right out. Walking in wisdom toward those who are outside. Let's stop there. Let me invite now some uh, a short time of questions. Wild accusations of heresy. Okay, so if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. We've got a, a microphone. Uh, this gentleman over here. Hello? Just wondering if you could share with us. I've heard you discuss before, just I'll call it the spectrum of evangelism. Uh, I think there's evangelism is defined a number of ways. And we've touched on a little bit tonight. You mentioned relationship evangelism. Yep. Uh, but I know I've heard you speak with regards to pulpit ministry and mm. your book and that that in itself is evangelism and not resting just on that being evangelism, but yeah. there's a spectrum. Could you kind of, You've touched on it, but you haven't really um, kind of drawn out where, you know, that it's here if people come into the lost yeah. and, and, and that type of thing, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, great question. Thank you. So I like to distinguish between what I call um, uppercase E evangelism and lowercase E evangelism. And it's analogous to uppercase W worship, lowercase W worship. So uh, there's a sense in which, you know, you can do everything to the glory of God, right? You can go out and milk cows to the glory of God, but we don't milk cows to the glory of God right here on Sunday, I think, right? I won't see that Sunday. Probably not. <clears throat> evangelism, I think we could see in similar categories and say that uh, we ought to believe wholeheartedly that the primary way that God is going to save people is through the preaching of his word, right? Short of Catechism 88, the outward and ordinary means by which God convinces and converts sinners is right there. I, I refer to this, my little moving part, uh, but this is the most powerful four square feet in the universe because from right here, the dead are raised, believe that the outward and ordinary way that God saves people is primarily through the preaching of his word you have the occasional oddball people who come to the Christ like I did you know on the back of a greyhound bus reading the bible that can happen people get saved all kinds of interesting ways uh, but I think uh, an important distinction is uh, some are called to evangelize from here some are called to evangelize as missionaries these are all ordained people but all are called to evangelize in some way evangelism is the work of the whole church 
in some way. Uh, there's a really interesting uh, little article, an old D Dutch one, uh, De Kerk in het Wereld Theater by H.J. Skilder, uh, where he talks about in the time of the concentration camps uh, where people were forced into these things. And he has beautiful language there where he refers to those who were suffering as a, as a cast on stage that the world was watching. Gospel witness as they attempted even to love their persecutors, to embody uh, gospel kindness and perseverance and faith and not give up on their trust in the Lord. Okay, and I'm suggesting that uh, the world is watching us. The world, according to Michael Horton, is a theater of love, hope, and reconciliation. And in a certain sense, we are a moving stage, always active, always on display, and always being watched. And the church is not only always being watched by the world, that leaves us in a passive role. The church as a whole has some active part, and I actually think we're unfulfilled and unsatisfied if we don't know what our part in this drama is. So uppercase E, evangelism, for the ministry of the pulpit or our sent missionaries, but all of us have some part. I remember uh, talking, I think it was actually when I was in uh, Winnipeg, um, that I heard a young lady say, a teenage girl uh, come up afterwards and just talk about the way that she would go out once in a while to a coffee place and have coffee and, and hope to meet people there uh, who were not Christians and talk to them. And she said something very interesting. She said, you know, some days I feel like, to be honest with you, I get along uh, with non-Christians than I do with Christians. You know what I said to her? I feel the exact same way and I'm a pastor. Isn't that terrible? But it's true. Right? Some days, uh, it's actually easier for us to engage, uh, for at least for some of us, non-Christians, because there's, you, know, you lack some of the pretense, right? And, and non-Christians are incredibly, it's interesting, you might not like this, and I'm just kind of developing or building on your question, but one of the things that strikes me about this day and age is how out there everybody is about whatever it is they are. Like there used to be a day, you know, if you had particular views or practices, you'd kind of keep that you know, sort of buttoning down and no one would really see what's on the inside. But now everybody's just, whatever they are, they're just, they're just loud about it. Except the church. We're quiet about the gospel because they might find out we're Christians. Okay. Maybe that's slightly overstated. Why aren't we as loud about who we are in Christ as the world is about who they are outside of Christ? Let's be loud. Not obnoxious, but joyful, right? Celebrating. So, great question. Sorry the answer was so long. You kind of expected that, didn't you? Next question. My last answer was so long, everyone's afraid. <clears throat> you say anything, it'll go 20 minutes. Um, so for a church like ours, um, we tend to be very generational, um, which means a lot of us have a lot of relationships with people that are very similar to us. We have the same worldview, same um, traditions, same culture. How would you recommend starting to expand and having relationships with, with people that have very different cultures, very different backgrounds, very different outlooks in life? Are there good resources, good programs? Um, just curious about that. Yeah, that's a great question, and I would have practically speaking, failed you had that question not come up. So thank you. Now uh, we'll both sleep better tonight. Um, 
So I would suggest, this is just my view, but that one of the things we ought to consider doing is building relationships with people in the places and spaces where we ourselves find comfort. So I'm a sports guy. I'm kind of a jock of all trades, master of none. I, I literally let my hair down only when I go to sleep and when I go surfing. And strangely enough, I find some of the most easy opportunities to talk with people about Christ or invite them to church on my day off when I'm not in my pastor mode, whatever that means, and I'm just out relaxing and having fun. And I think part of the reason is when I'm relaxing and having fun, that's my therapy zone, right? Other people tend to do the same thing. They relax, metaphorically drop their hair, and uh, in those contexts, uh, they're, they're willing to talk about life because they're out there t- for therapeutic reasons. They're trying to rehab their bodies without knowing it, their souls, and they're looking for it in sports or whatever it happens to be. And so where people drop their guard and relax, uh, where you drop your guard and relax, is probably where we have the best potential to make relationships. So the implication then would be that we need to think about where are the places and ways that we can actually cultivate relationships with people outside our current circles. So I had someone tell me, you know, we, we go to church together, we go to school together, we work together, you know, we could almost live inside this. That troubles me a little bit. That, I don't, I mean, to me, that's just like a planet far, far away. It's kind of hard to even comprehend, but I get it. And I would say that maybe what we should consider doing is being intentional about trying to be in some places, and I'm not talking about, you know, going to bars, dumb stuff or whatever, we're just being reckless morally. Uh, I'm not opposed, by the way, to Christian liberty and, you know, alcohol moderation, but my point is to say, I'm not trying to say let's be reckless, but I am saying let's be intentional. So I like to surf, and <clears throat> that's just, you know, my area, my niche. Uh, if, if, if you like to play golf, for instance, repent. <laughs> it's a horrible sport. It's an absolute waste of time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. The elect are here. Now I know for sure. If you want to hear me go on a playful rant, just ask me later why golf is not a sport and sit down and it's on. But since my host plays golf, I should probably be quiet lest I sleep outside with the deer. Uh, But seriously, think about being intentional. Where could you go out and just in an easy, comfortable way, go play basketball or hockey or whatever it is you do. But also think about uh, using those places as spaces where you can meet people and after a game, invite them over for dinner and... Dutch apple pie. Okay, we've got this down. Do we have time for another question too? This gentleman here, Laurel. My experience is um, people who come to the Reformed understanding of Scripture in the Christian worldview usually are those who are intellectual, are readers, and they've embraced Calvinism and Jesus Christ, but the Calvinist understanding of the scriptures. And um, I'm finding that people who are most evangelically minded will go to um, a more EV-free, Baptistic-type church where there's no responsibility spiritually, there's no responsibility financially, there's no responsibility membership-wise. There's, it's easy come, easy go. Why would someone want to come to a church which demands uh, responsibility in the spiritual life, responsibility in the fiscal life, responsibility in the moral life, et cetera, et cetera? <coughs> Could you address some aspect of that? 
Yeah, I'll take a stab at it. And there are a couple of layers there. But one is to say, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm not a missiologist, someone who's studied missions a ton, but I'm, I'm impressed with a perception that actually if you look at some of the best missionaries by name recognized in the history of Christendom since the time of the Reformation, most of them are actually Calvinistic. So I actually think we don't simply hold the side of the table when it comes to good scholarship. I actually think we hold the better side of the table when it comes to missions. There just have been pockets of exception, right, in, in recent Western Christendom narratives where we've atrophied or got maybe focused on uh, good things to exclusion of other good things, if not better things, depending on how you look at that. Um, but I want to go to your other question. One of the things that's encouraging to me, and I think our church plant story, there's a reason why I began with that, because if you came to our church, which you should do sometime, um, you know, we have morning and evening worship. We have weekly communion. Morning this week, evening next week, we go back and forth. I go through the Heidelberg nonstop over and over, and we have for all the years I've been there. I mean, this is, this, there's, no, there's no flash in the pan uh, you know, for music, we have a, a piano, violin, flute, cello. Um, that's about as close as we get to exotic. It's not very exotic. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing gimmicky about it. And I think one of the things that you're seeing, this is encouraging, so be encouraged. I, I think Gen Y, millennial, that transition, I, I think there are a lot of people that are waking up to the delusion of postmodernism. Here's what I mean by that. I think uh, there are two trails people have gone down. One is to say, okay, you know what? The world is all about me, and I want my church to be as well. I want it to look like me. I want it to sound like me. I want it to be my narcissistic mirror in which I find my own reflection. And so you have uh, what my, uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, who happens to be with me, uh, calls popcorn church, <clears throat> right? You walk in, you get a Coke, you get a bag of popcorn, and the movie comes on, and everybody claps, looks just like the movie theater or the rock concert on Saturday night, popcorn church. And I, a lot of people have gone that trail. There are also a lot of people who are looking at the same, wait a minute, church and Disney World look identical. And Disney World's fun to visit, but nobody wants to live there. It's not a sustainable diet, right? Uh, people don't live on mountaintops. They live in valleys. Look at the Bible. Nobody lives on the mountain. Everybody walks through the valley. Okay? And so people are recognizing that the entertainment, consumeristic approach to church, which is a very recent and Western feature, really since the cultural shift of the 1960s, that's when that began. I think there are a lot of people are waking up to that, saying, you know what, uh, the church is 2,000 years old. The truth isn't invented, it's inherited. And if you're trying to do whatever you can to patronize me, I don't trust you. And if postmoderns are anything, there are people who are looking for, and I've begun to almost like, uh, when I hear this word, but they want everything to be authentic. Plastic church is not authentic. So if what we are saying is, you know, this is all just a facade, well, then they would say, that's plastic church and I don't trust it. But if you're willing to say, no, I think we're standing for truth. Let me show you what truth looks like in worship, what truth looks like in family, what truth uh, looks like in a variety of different areas, and you're coming from the perspective of truth. Now, that's something that will pierce through the thin veneer of consumerism in a way that will make people say, you know what, I can trust a guy that'll tell me the truth. I can trust a book that embodies the truth, and I don't trust these things that keep asking me every 30 minutes, what would you like to do next? 
So I have hope. God is doing great things. There's actually, I think, there's actually a revival reformation uh, of churches of this sort of strife because people are realizing that thing they call the church growth movement uh, was the church is flirting with a secular model and it hasn't borne great fruit. And ironically and sadly, it divided generations from generations. And so all the people that paid for it are now looking at it and say, where'd my kids and my grandkids go? Well, a lot of them are coming home. But not just to grandma and grandpa, they're coming home to truth. You have to lead with truth. But if you do, I think you're going to see people come. This gentleman up here, I think some of you know this man. Just uh, one suggestion, if I may, about uh, leading, and especially within the context of, of where you're speaking, how do you deal with people of different uh, cultural backgrounds? How do you bring them within the church, um, especially uh, as organized as we are as a church? The book by uh, Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Yeah. A lot of that, um, you're familiar with that. Uh, it's a recent book, but it's, uh, it, it's excellent. It gives you excellent ideas of how to bring the gospel to, to your neighborhood. She comes from a dysfunctional family. She loves family with all kinds of people. I don't think we would do that as much. Uh, I, I know I wouldn't. But uh, um, it's, uh, it, it's really uh, eye-opening to see how you can come with the gospel. And just like you say, with love, you know, she cooks meals for them and all kinds of people. She's not there to right away evangelize them, but there to live out the gospel. And they come. And then you want to be part of the, of the church, too, and part of that structure. Yeah, thank you, sir. That, by the way, was a book earlier today. I was asked for book recommendations. Uh, that was one of the two that I suggested. Another one I would throw out is actually written by a 17-year-old girl. Uh, it's called This Changes Everything, which would be a great book. Uh, it could be a lady study, you study. It'd actually be pretty interesting for parents to read a book written by a 17-year-old girl talking about uh, how... Um, she just really came to terms with her faith and decided, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And this changes everything. Uh, was there another question? Okay, up there in the, oh, this gentleman and then the guy in the box. That doesn't sound right. way to talk to people is asking questions, but I find after I've done my initial questions, third or fourth time I've talked to them, I've kind of done my spiel, and I don't know how to get to the next step with them. How would you recommend, after I've known them, I've shared the gospel, what's, how do I keep the conversation going? Yeah, so that's tricky, because no situation is the same. This is kind of like those marriage counseling books, where they create like a little scenario, as though they're all going to be like that, and then you actually start doing marriage counseling, and you realize only that one was like that, and that was 10 pages in a book. So every situation is different, but I think he says something really key, and that's learning to ask good questions. Uh, with a lot of people, <clears throat> if you ask good questions, which by the way assumes you're talking to somebody, but if you're asking good questions, eventually they're going to ask questions back. And I think at some point we have to recognize too, there's nothing formulaic here that's going to guarantee success. Like you're going to try and you're going to fail. <clears throat> but maybe just being brave and willing enough to fail is where we need to get. 
Uh, there's a wonderful uh, quote by Van Til I didn't get to because Laurel was kind of harsh with the schedule. <clears throat> uh, but where uh, Van Til suggests that God will humble people that aren't willing to be humbled for him. You've got to be willing to fail. Listen, I, I will, my wife thinks that I'm maybe a little too extroverted, and the joke is I'll talk to a tree if I could get a tree to stand still. We go on vacations or out for a date, and she says, now listen, can we not have a 20-minute conversation with the waitress about, you know, her life story or whatever? I have to, like, agree to this when we go on vacation and on dates. Most people aren't like that, but even for a person who has way too much sort of social EQ, uh, you, for every 10 great conversations you have, nine of them probably fail or maybe even end a little bit awkwardly. Uh, and I don't think people need to try to do the way things I try to do them at all. I'm probably just kind of a, an oddball in a lot of ways. But I, I think that if we're willing to just genuinely, and I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, just love people. And what is love? What's the first thing? First Corinthians 13? Patient. If you're going to love me, you're going to need a lot of patience. That can be hard to love. If you're going to love a non-Christian, you're going to need patience. But I think if people sense all we're trying to do is get them to come to our church They'll feel more like a statistic or a project than a person. And they need to feel like people. That's one of the th strengths of the book that uh, your pastor here has uh, referenced. People need to sense love. And the first, you know, the stage of love is patience. And so we have to be patient. We need to recognize we may invest time and energy into people and it doesn't end up where we are. But that's the cool thing actually about being a Calvinist, right? I can't love people into the kingdom, but I think it's biblical I should try to love people. So I would encourage just perseverance. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there's that old quote by, I think it's maybe falsely attributed uh, to the sissy, and then somebody else picked it up. Uh, Use the gospel all the time and share the gospel all the time and sometimes use words. That's actually not very good. Okay, we ought to be kind to people all the time, but we ought to share the gospel with people all the time as well, or at least as we have opportunities to speak the word. In other words, uh, godly living, this is an R.B. Kuyper quote, uh, godly living is no substitute for the gospel itself. At some point, what people need to hear is the gospel itself. And that in the context of us loving them, but they need to hear the claims of King Jesus. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, maybe make this one the last, Laurel, do you think? Or we have, yep. Got perfect, okay. Yes, sir. So when you started your church plant, I think you said about 12 years ago, um, I could be wrong, um, I would assume that you had to be very purposeful in how you evangelized um, or met people to bring to your church. Uh, what are some of the ways you did that? I went surfing. <laughs> and a church came out of it. Okay. <clears throat> No, so my, my, my program is no program. I can't, I'm not anti-program. I really mean that. I actually think programs are helpful because they teach us how to think in ways that cultivate our reflexes. Uh, for a lot of years, I played like semi-pro racquetball, and I'd just go stand on a court and just hit the same shot over and over and over with nobody else on the court. So for no other reason, when actually another person got there, you know, you create this thing called muscle memory, and we're standing again on the corner of the court, 
you know, your body knows exactly what kind of mechanics you need to engage. And I think the benefit of some of the different things that we can learn and go through program-wise is it cultivates our reflexes so that we can give better answers, we can be more sharp, more precise, learn to look people in the eye, listen better, all that kind of stuff. That being said, I don't think there's a program. Like, this isn't a Wednesday night, it's all going to happen. It's much more of an as-you-go, right? You know, I go to the grocery store with my little kids, and I'm helpless and befuddled, and some sweet lady comes alongside and says, you don't have a clue what you're doing. I'm like, no, what are you doing here? Well, my wife's at home with our other one, and this one's sleeping, and we need to milk. So I came out. That's insane. Yeah, we just moved up here to start a church, and it's kind of crazy. We're just getting things going. Uh, my name's Eric. What's your name? What do you do? And we're just talking, and then, you know, I keep cards with me. Uh, you should all have a little card uh, that you can just give to people so you can invite them to your church. They're cheap. Okay? Uh, so, you know, we have this, our church. I have my own card, and there's a church card that people just give out to people that they meet wherever, and they can invite people to church. And so, I, you know, for every 40 cards I'd give out, one person might show up or people in the church, and this is important, I learned very quickly that I was not the only church planner that was going to do this, or it wasn't going to happen, and so we would just talk about, you know, things like we're discussing now, as you go and you get an opportunity to talk with a friend, you're at the grocery store, and you see another mom, and she's having a rough week with the kids, and you yourself are surviving as a mom with the kids because you have a family, and you've got a great church family, but that lady doesn't. So I don't know where I'd be without my church family. That's probably the truth. Do you guys have a church? If you don't, maybe you'd like to come visit ours. My mom, by the way, makes a mean Dutch apple pie. <laughs> Every time. So, you know, maybe just the little things can become the big things, but it's in the warp and woof of natural life. When we're just ourselves at the grocery store or the basketball court or whatever, even the golf course, where there's a lot of sinning and sinners there. <laughs> great place to go and do evangelism. Uh, maybe those are the little stage that the Lord might give us. Uh, let me just say something. I'm going to let, uh, I think the pastor going to come and close here, but let me just say this. There's a psalm, uh, language that reminds us that in, the, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And I'm confident that I'm a sinful man with imperfect thoughts, words, and deeds. It's a privilege to come here and to talk about things like this uh, but I want to close in saying, if there's anything I've said that's been unhelpful or offensive, please forgive me. I don't mean to offend. I do mean to be honest and to wrestle with you about how best we can honor and serve the Lord as his church. And if there's been any profit, my prayer is that you will not only uh, remember those things, but practice, right? Uh, because the one who looks into these things but does nothing with them, I think James has something about that right? Uh, what we want to do is be practicers, doers of the truth, and those who do the truth in love. Uh, so thank you very kindly for the opportunity to come and to spend a little time with you. And I think I get to preach here Sunday morning. Looking forward to that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Reverend Watkins, I um, should clarify that there's a whole bunch of churches represented here. There's, uh, besides the Emmanuel Canadian Reformed Church, there's other Canadian Reformed Churches in Edmonton, United Reformed Church, Bible Presbyterian, uh, United Reformed Churches. Did I say that already? Yeah. 
I, we invited the Protestant Reformed Church as well. I'm not sure if they're here uh, as well, but so there's, there's quite a representative group here. Um, the mission board thought it would be good if the pastor of this church like showed his face. So my name is Julius Vance Bronson. I'm the pastor of this church. Just a curious thing. A, a lot of the Dutch thing you said, I didn't understand. You, <clears throat> you, you know more Dutch than me. You probably... You've probably eaten more Dutch apple pie than I have. Who, who here has had Dutch apple pie like in the last half year? Okay, so you're not THM. That's, uh... <laughs> and the Dutch, Dutch words that you heard, uh, I, I don't know that everybody understood them either. So we certainly are aware that uh, it's, we're, we're at a different stage. This building built by our fathers has... Uh, slots in it for the salt to go out. This is a big salt shaker, this building here, and, and uh, <clears throat> they made it with slots so we can get shaken out into the world and share the faith, and, and it's good. It's very appreciative. I, I think uh, very well spoken. Very, very, thank you very much for your time uh, coming all the way out here. You said you'd take 20 families, and I'm number one on that list. Uh, <laughs> I think I like surfing, too. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. Well, after you called us nuts for, for living here, in spite of her education. Um, <laughs> good. I shouldn't take more time. Um, so thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you to the committee to, who organized all this. Um, I, you saw some of their faces. Uh, Laurel was spoken poorly of uh, tonight for uh, being faithful with time, but we are actually very appreciative for her role in organizing a lot of this. <laughs> You can't even talk anymore. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Sunday, you're preaching here twice, I understand, the morning and the afternoon. Yeah, oh yeah, please. Yeah, if, if Laurel lets you. That's a <laughs> We're going to sing, our st um, I'm going to read Psalm 96, and I think it'd be good to sing that. It's, um, I think uh, most of us would know the melody. If you don't, it should be in the book. Um, there's a book of praise in the pew in front of you. It kind of looks like, like this. And then the Psalms are in the front part, page uh, 96. And uh, it's a beautiful psalm about declaring the glory of the Lord to the nations. Um, I think if, if, after I read the psalm, we sing the, the first two stanzas. So the psalm reads, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. 
He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So Psalm 96, uh, page 235 in the Book of Praise. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise your holy name. You are the creator of heavens and earth. We see the splendor of your majesty, the glory of your name. We praise you that we may know you as our Father, our Lord, our Savior. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the transformation of the gospel that we can see in our lives. We thank you for the blessings that you pour out upon us. We praise you that today we could again uh, take time to think about evangelism and to be led in our thinking by Reverend Watkins and as he spoke to us about the importance, the joy, the privilege of sharing our faith. We thank you, Father, for the work that he has been able to do, gospel sharing. We thank you for your work in his life and through his life and through also his uh, family. And we thank you that Kira can be here with him on this trip. We ask, O oh Lord, that in our conversations and as we go from here into all our different circumstances and situations, that we may continue to have many opportunities to share the gospel, that you will uh, help us to feel nudged to take that step if we have been uh, hesitant and to be confident in the love that we show to those around us, those in this, our sphere of influence. We pray that you will bless the, the men, the, all the different work that is being done, and we pray that you will uh, continue to open doors and give opportunities to 
every one of us as we share our faith, share our joy, and speak about Jesus Christ to those around us. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will watch over us this evening as we go from here. Keep us in your care. Bless us on our uh, journeys home. Keep us safe from the cold. And also that we may, we thank you that we do have warm homes uh, to go to. We, do, we ask, Lord, that you will also prepare our hearts and minds for worship on Sunday. And that as we prepare for worship your name, as we invite our neighbors to also come and hear the proclamation of the gospel, that in all this, O Lord, your name may be glorified and honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night. Good evening. Good journey.